Uh, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Good to be here together in this cold, cold January morning. Not too cold, just a little cold. Um, we are this morning not going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Today's message is going to be different than usual. Uh, it's not different in, in the sense that I have never addressed this topic before. Uh, I have on several occasions, and uh, it's different specifically because we are addressing a, a legal matter that is happening currently. Uh, by preaching this today, we join hundreds and potentially thousands of other pastors who are addressing this same topic today. And no, it is not uh, related to Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. It is not the Sanctity of Life Sunday, although uh, we would support, obviously, both of those things. Uh, and other, other pastors will choose to address those topics today. But for me and for this church, I've made a decision to accept an invitation uh, from Pastor John MacArthur. He called me on my cell phone and asked me, no, this was an open invitation, uh, to take a stand on January 16th in solidarity with Canadian pastors as they stand for sexual biblical morality. Allow me to bring you up to speed uh, on some of these things. I know we posted it on Facebook in various places uh, but many of you may not know what I'm talking about, so I'm gonna, we're all over the place this morning. So we're in point one already. Here it is. Number one, an explanation of Bill C-4. Bill C-4. As you probably know, Canada is more liberal than the United States in almost every way. Uh, they do not have a constitution like ours. They do not have a First Amendment like ours. Uh, their Christian percentage of the population is significantly smaller than ours. Uh, in many ways, Canada is what California would be if they were not connected to the other 49 states. Um, in December of 2021, a bill was passed in the first session of the 44th Parliament entitled C4. It was affirmed unopposed and given royal assent on December 8th, 2021, meaning that it would become official Canadian law 30 days later. Upon reviewing this bill, many Christians in ministry in Canada became deeply concerned at the wording and language of this bill. Pastors, Christian counselors, Christian schools and the like, took notice of something that was a big change, and that was the broadening of a term called conversion therapy. Now, if you're thinking like I did when I first heard the term conversion therapy, you might be thinking of barbaric practices of old where people were strapped to the gurney with electrodes on their foreheads and people shouting at you and whipping you when they say certain words and hypnosis and even lobotomies. And I believe everyone agrees that is not what we want to stand in support of. However, Bill C-4 leaves the phrase conversion therapy, but changes the definition to mean, and I quote, any practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender identity, repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned at birth. That is section 320 in the heading. 
Now that is legalese. But in other words, if I declare to you today that I am a gay man, I'm not, for the record, but if I declare to you that, or that I'm identifying as a woman or something in that, in that world, no one can legally try to change my mind. If I were to meet with a pastor or a Christian counselor, and they challenged me on the basis of Scripture to repent of my sin, to submit to Christ, to follow what the Bible says, to uh, deny my flesh, to live in a way that pleases God, well, I've just received conversion therapy because I was challenged to convert and repress my desires. Pastors of Canada read this bill, and they connected the dots rightly. They noted, if we preach biblical sexuality from the pulpit, if we challenge the sins of homosexuality and transsexuality and present an opportunity to repent and turn to Christ, this bill says we are conversion therapists. So what is the punishment for this new crime in Canada? Well, section 320, paragraph 102.A says, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy including by providing conversion therapy to that person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprison, imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. So January 16 today is the first Sunday in which this law is in full effect. And a group of Canadian pastors decided to purposefully and intentionally break this law and preach the truth according to God. Some of these pastors are former students of the Master's Seminary, and so they asked John MacArthur if he would stand with them and use his national platform to preach. Not only did MacArthur say yes, but he placed an invitation out to other pastors and churchmen all across the world to join the effort. As soon as I saw the invitation, I signed my name to the public roster and affirmed intent to preach. And so, here we are today. Today's message is entitled, in defense of Canadian pastors. My main idea today will be this. Man's unbiblical laws can never prohibit Christians from boldly proclaiming the truth of God's word and living by it. And additionally, conversion from our sin to a new life in Christ is the only hope that any of us have. I want you to confirm in your heart today that we serve a higher king than any earthly ruler and that our ultimate submission is to his will and no one else's. If you would, let's pray before we look at the word. Our Father, Lord, I pray that today we would be bold yet humble in what we say and do. Lord, that we recognize your truth as absolute standard and authority, sufficient for all of our life. And Father, that you would grant us a heart that is on one, hand, on one hand righteously angry, but on the other hand desiring repentance and to see your hand of mercy poured out upon those entrapped in all sins, including LGBT sins, Lord, that you can save and redeem anybody. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our initial text will be in the book of Daniel chapter 6 today. I am going to say something before we go right there, but if you want to pre-turn, it's Daniel 6. The second point that I want to make to you today is to give an explanation of our engagement. 
to give an explanation of our engagement. In other words, why are we doing this? Why would I sign my name to this? There's plenty of things I don't sign and do. We don't take every holiday or everything to talk about. Why this one? It's likely that even some of you are, are wishing I wasn't talking about this. Uh, perhaps you don't like to engage this topic uh, to push on any of those sins in the LGBTQ group. Perhaps you're uncomfortable right now and you feel it and you don't like it. Perhaps you don't like the idea of me addressing a law, actual uh, a law on the books. Uh, it feels political to you. Perhaps it feels like activism to you, politics creeping into the church. In reality today, this message is, is really two-pronged. It's about God's view of sexuality, which we are going to discuss, but it's also about the role of governments in our lives to dictate what we can and cannot say. And boy, if there's been a time when we've seen that play out, it's been the last few years, hasn't it? If you're a member of this church, you, you know that I already speak about these issues. It's not taboo. This is not uncomfortable in this church to talk about this, uh, but I want to give four practical reasons briefly why I chose to engage this topic. First is solidarity. Christian pastors in Canada asked for this. They asked the question, will our American brothers stand with us? You see, they actually live in the nation where Bill C-4 is. We, we don't. When they stand up to preach today, right now, many of them right now, especially if they're in the central time zone like we are, they're breaking the law. I'm not. You're not. They have a five-year prison sentence hanging over their head, and we don't. I want to know if you agree with me on this, because I think this is important. If we can't preach the truth when it costs us nothing, while at the same time our brothers preach the truth and it costs them prison, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. I, I don't believe God would have us to be a discouragement to Canadian pastors when they ask for help I believe we should help and be an encouragement to them. Secondly, this lot will likely fall to us in our lifetimes. 20 states, you could probably guess which ones, plus 100 cities, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico, have conversion therapy laws on their books. Now, they are not as broadly defined as the one we're talking about today. But the template has been made, and they know now what they want to do California has talked about this in recent years, about doing this exact thing. Have no doubt this is coming, and so we should prepare what we're going to do now for when it inevitably does come. Thirdly, tyrants who stand in opposition to a sovereign God must be opposed by the people of that sovereign God. The definition of a tyrant is this. An absolute ruler who is unrestrained by law, who has usurped a legitimate ruler's authority. When King Jesus spoke to us and told us to extend the gospel of repentance and grace, of the cross and the empty tomb, and any ruler of law stands between you and the high king of heaven, we have a tyrant that must be opposed. Not only can we disobey an unjust law, we should and glorify God as we do. And lastly, this issue is coming for your children and grandchildren at a bloodthirsty pace. There comes a time when you've been advanced upon by the enemy, you've tried to use defensive maneuvers, you tried to avoid conflict and reason, but they keep coming. 
relentlessly at you. There is a time in life to say, I will not be bullied anymore. And in the words of John MacArthur, it's time to take a stand and put the government on notice. So I hope to impress upon you today a sense of boldness, a sense of conviction that you are not a helpless pawn in your life. Your children are not to be pawns in a system designed to hurt them. And in the words of Aragorn, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. That was an explanation of why we would engage. So I'd like to get to the text of the Bible. We'll do that in point three, which is an explanation of biblical precedent. Biblical precedent. What does the Bible say about taking stands like this? Is, is there any precedent in God's word to encourage us, to instruct us when a government passes a law that we just can't obey? Well, I believe Daniel 6 is as good as any other. If you remember, Babylon had taken Israel captive and hauled off its best Israelite men uh, to go and have roles in their pagan government. Uh, After some time, Babylon went under new management to the Medo-Persians, and Daniel was promoted to a high level in that government. So we pick up there in Daniel 6.1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps and to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground or complaint for any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any grounds for complaints against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Hmm. So Daniel is ascending in the kingdom. He's on the upswing, the rise. He's being promoted and other leaders around him start to hate him because he is successful but also because they recognize that they cannot just get him in trouble like everybody else because he doesn't have these glaring flaws and faults to point out and tattle upon. He had given no reason for that. And so the jealous rulers realized they're going to have to weaponize Daniel's faith in God to bring about his downfall. Verse 6 continues on. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So what do the leaders of this nation do? They get a bill signed into law. Isn't there a song about that, how a bill, I'm just a bill, right? There's something out there about that. That's what they do. They formalize legislation that says, No prayers, no petition to God or king or man, anyone other than King Darius, nobody gets recognized in a worshipful, prayerful kind of way 
for 30 days, nobody but Darius. This is Bill C4, right? Just another, another way of doing something like this in the Bible. They wanted an outcome achieved, and so they got a law passed. Now, it's easier with a monarch than it is with a parliament or with a congress. We know that. But still, the same binding effect was true. Now, let's consider Daniel's options here. What could Daniel have done in this situation? He's an upstanding citizen, a leader in the nation, probably had a high-paying job, lots to lose. He could have submitted to the governing authorities above him, right? He could have said, I can go 30 days without praying to God. I mean, I've done it before. You know, no one needs to know that, but I have. God understands. I just play ball, keep a low profile, you know, look, you know, keep a low profile, and pray real big after the 30 days is over. He could have said, you know, I can pray privately. I can, you know, very, you know, internally, just something like this, real, keep it real tight. I could go into my room, into my closet, put a sheet over my head, and me and God can just have a nice prayer time there. No one will ever have to know, 30 days. But what did he do? Verse 10 When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber and opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So not only did Daniel do what he always did, he opened the windows and kept a schedule. It was like he wanted to be seen breaking the law. He was not deterred from following his God. So you have to ask yourself, church, was Daniel wrong? Was Daniel wrong in his failure to submit to the governing authorities above him? Does the Bible paint Daniel as some rogue, civilly disobedient, uncultured swine? What's the answer? The answer is no. And how do we know that the answer is no? We don't just guess the answer is no. How do we know that the answer is no? Because when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, God rescued him. God was behind him. What does that mean? It means that God was absolutely supportive of what Daniel did. God supported Daniel breaking an unjust law. And he was glorified in that boldness. Not only did Daniel not comply, he increased in his boldness. So I believe that this is just one example, and there are many more, of a strong biblical precedent for what we are supporting today, that Canadian pastors should not submit to Bill C-4, and that if we ever receive such legislation, we should prepare not to submit as well. When our number is called, and it might be, we do the same. Now, I want to transition to what the Bible says about sexual morality and biblical conversion. This is the content of what C4 seeks to ban. Point four today is an explanation of biblical conversion. If we lose the ability to speak with those embroiled in sins such as homosexuality and transgenderism, and to speak about the reality that Christ can forgive and heal and grant new life, then the gospel practically is stripped of its power. 
Let's call it like it is. Bill C-4 and legislation like it seek to ban biblical repentance. That's what this is about. It seeks to criminalize the concept that someone could ever be challenged to see their sin as rebellion against God's design, repent of that sin, and place total faith in Jesus for forgiveness and to walk in a new life. It criminalizes the power of the gospel. Now, to reiterate why this is an increasingly relevant topic, because you might be thinking about old data in your mind, that this is actually just inflated. This is not actually as big as the media makes it out to be. In case that's what you think, let me just offer you some details and some data. 2020 statistics have come out which seek to give the current identification by generation of those who identify with LGBTQ or any of those additional letters. Of all the builders, that's the 1913 to 1945, some call it the great generation, so there's all sorts of names for it, 1.3% identify as LGBT. Of all the boomers, how many boomers in here? All right, we got a few boomers. For, that's from 46 to 64. 2% identify with LGBT. How about Gen Xers? We got any Gen Xers in here? Good representation, okay. 3.8% identify with LGBT. Now, where are my people at? Millennials. We got some? Although I think we might be the leaders in here now. Among millennials, this is really where the change happened. 9.1% identify as LGBT. But the dam breaks with Gen Z. How many Gen Zers do we have in here? We have some. Okay. That's, uh, that's what would be like our late high school and college age students today. 15.9% identify as some part of the LGBT group. Church, when do we sound the alarm bell? I used to say things like, I don't want to be an alarmist, but, but I'm alarmed. I'm alarmed. Are you alarmed? I mean, something dark is happening. Something dark is happening. And it's at the same time that the dark powers of this culture are gaining ground and claiming our kids for sexual immorality, that they simultaneously want to create the impossibility of being challenged by God's word, and they want to create a world where kids are separated from their parents and influenced by either schools or social media. That's the, that's the game. Those statistics indicate a cultural movement. You've lived through a major cultural movement. Calling yourself today bisexual, pansexual, non-binary, gender non-conforming, is as trendy today as it was being a football player or cheerleader in the 70s and wearing the Leatherman jacket and walking through the high school and being Fonzie. It's the same level of cool. I kid you not. The social stigma is gone. There's no more social stigma. And one could argue that the social stigma is gone because of the change in the laws. There is an argument to be made for laws and Christians arguing for just laws. You receive instant attention today, instant sympathy, and an instant community if you make a declaration to be a part of that group. And the numbers are only increasing. 
I want to share an illustration with you, something that happened to me. This is a real illustration. It's not a metaphor, but it is a metaphor at the same time. It's a metaphor and it happened to me. Um, and so I really want this to be for you who are sort of on the fence about this, or maybe if you are dabbling in this, if you're, maybe you've given over to it, maybe you're dabbling in it a little bit. I want this story to be for you because I think God let it happen to me so I could tell this story. A few weeks ago, my dad was in town. You remember that? We had picked up a pizza. Doesn't matter where from. It was Pizza Hut, all right? I threw up later that night. Different story. Don't get the mushrooms at Pizza Hut. Okay, so we picked up a pizza, and we're driving on our way back to the house, and we were driving my 2001 Chevy pickup truck, my tan truck. You've probably seen it before. We were actually pulling out of the exit of Dove Creek, so over there, right? That's where the Dove Creek area is. Uh, Mod Pizza, Chipotle, nothing bunt cakes, right? That little area. I just feel worse saying that. So, uh, that, but that was the shopping center. We were exiting that area, waiting for a spot in the traffic. You know, you try to pull to the right, get on the frontage road so that you can get on 1604. It's kind of a quick change. So we were at that spot waiting, looking, looking to the left, trying to turn right. And so as our eyes are looking left to check the oncoming traffic, Boom, pop, rear-ended, pretty hard too. Someone slammed into the back of us. Now, neither of us were hurt, so we pulled over to the side. You know, the adrenaline kind of, you just got to get the adrenaline out for a second. We pulled over to the side of the road. The gentleman pulled behind us to assess the damage and to speak to each other about what just happened. So he was a nice young man. He was very rattled. His hands were shaking and voice was quivering talking to us, and Immediately, he was saying, it's my fault, it's my fault, and uh, he's apologizing. It was his fault, for the record, uh, in case the insurance is listening, but <laughs> it was. Everyone seemed okay. There was, there was no big problems, and so we go to check out our truck. That's my next move. Okay, well, you're good. Physically, I'm good. All right, let's look at my truck. All right, I got to go check this out. So that's my granddad's truck, right? I'm trying to keep that thing as long as I can. Sentimental, nostalgic. Okay, so I'm trying to hang on to this truck. So I go look at the bumper, the tailgate, all over the back, something, trying to find any dents, scratches, dings, nothing, nothing there. I can't see anything. And trust me, you know when you get hit by a car, you're trying to find anything. And uh, I did not see, truly, there was nothing. And so I look at the other driver's car. It was a nice, newer, red Toyota Camry and uh, had a very... He, you could tell he had a sport grill. He had put an additional aftermarket grill on the front to make it look more sporty. And that grill had a hole punched in it about the size of a cantaloupe. It then dawned on me what happened. He rammed into my steel frame for the trailer hitch. Now, we both agreed it was his fault. I had no damage. So we shook hands and went our separate ways. That's the end of that, that story. What's the connection, though, to what I'm talking about today? My truck reminded me a lot of God that day, and that Camry reminded me a lot of man that day. Here's how. If we ram into God in rebellion, thinking that we're going to get him to move from his position, we are the ones who get hurt and he's the one who remains unmoved. Here's the thing. Nothing you can do will change 
what God has said. You can say, God, you need to change with the times. Be affirming of these things and really love people. But guess what? You will keep saying that while God's trailer hitch tears a hole through your grill. Church, we have a holy responsibility to tell people that are hurtling toward danger that they are on a path that leads to misery and death. This culture has proven, and we've got a good sample size, this culture has proven the only thing it knows how to master is anxiety, depression, confusion, and sorrow. That's what they're really good at. So if you want more, they got you covered. The irrationality of sin is that you think you're this cool, hot rebel because you're not listening to God. But what you don't understand is that you are going to hurt yourself more by rebelling against God than if you just submitted to his will the first time. His desire for you is not death, but life. Now, I know what the world is saying, but the Bible has other things to say about that. The world and Bill C4 both say that if you are gay, lesbian, transsexual, bisexual, that's what those letters mean in case you don't know, or something else that you say is a fixed part of me, this is who I am, it can't be changed. That's what the current byline is. It's who I am, can't be changed. But is that true? Sometimes the culture just says stuff and we Christians just start being a parrot and just saying it back. Is that true though? Is there any other sin category that we say is fixed and can't be changed? Do we say to the thief, this is just who you are? Do we say to the adulterer, it's just who you are? Do we say to the liar, it's just what you do? Liars going to lie, right? Do we say that? There is no sin in the Bible that you ever see claimed as an identity. It's not there. That being the case, apart from Christ, sin is our identity. Not any one sin. But before you meet Christ, do you know that your identity is sin? Son of Adam, Satan's your daddy. And we are born that way. Romans 1.26 speaks of the condition of sinfulness when it sets into a heart that suppresses the truth. This is more reliable than any news you watch. This is what's happening right now. Verse 26 of Romans 1 says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Listen to this. Failure to acknowledge God leaves any person open to a slide into a debased mind. Sin becomes entrenched. It manifests in worshiping the creature rather than the creator. It manifests in dishonorable passions such as rejecting God's plan for your sexuality and embracing a perversion of the real thing. It manifests in the loss of all shame. It manifests in God allowing the error of your sin to run its natural course and bring a passive judgment upon you. 
However, if there's anything we see in Romans 1 in the darkness of this chapter is the need for a supernatural conversion out of it. Now, we all say things all year long like nothing is impossible with God. And don't you dare limit the power of God. And Jesus can open the eyes of the blind and turn the water into wine. We say that, right? We believe this is true. So why then would we not believe that Jesus can convert someone from any of those LGBTQ letters to follow after him with a pure heart? Why would we not believe that? We're talking a lot about conversion therapy today. We, the heart of Christianity is conversion. You understand that? Conversion is the whole ball of wax. That's the whole thing. Conversion and total transformation of the heart is not just the hope of a transsexual or a homosexual. It's my only hope, too. You understand? Every person ever born with the stain of sin is born because they are descendants of Adam. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51. And the wages of those sins are death. All of us stand condemned. I hear this today. Fornicators living with your girlfriend stand condemned. Drug addicts, liars, thieves, greedy people, proud people, pornographers, coveters, adulterers, all need the same thing. And it's that a conversion experience with Jesus Christ can change you. If a dead man can resurrect after three days in a tomb, you can overcome your darkest sin through the power of Jesus, the same power of Jesus that is available to you. Conversion is the heart of the gospel. Paul wrote about this to the Corinthians as he was detailing their struggles and their sins. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such what? What did it say? Look back at it. And such what? Were. And such were. Wait a minute now. You mean you can come back? You can come back from those sins? You mean you can sleep around with your girlfriend and repent and come to Jesus and he'll take you? Is that what we're saying? You mean you can worship an idol out in the villages of India, bow down to the elephant God, worship him, be convicted of your sin, Throw that idol in the fire and come back to Jesus and he'll still receive you? You mean you can be a drunkard your whole life and repent and come to Jesus? You mean adulterers can be forgiven if they repent of that sin and come to Jesus? You mean those who practice homosexuality can repent and come to Jesus? Absolutely yes. I refuse to say that there is a God who can speak the universe into existence with a single word, but can't grant repentance to the heart of someone who claims to be LGBT. I refuse to believe it. 
Paul says it happened in Corinth. It happened. He saw people who once practiced homosexuality washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus. And here's why this matters, church. Bills like C4 and others like it would seek to make illegal the hope that is found in those words, and such were some of you, but you were washed. It would seek to strip away 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be found in Christ, he is a new creation. We would cut people off from the blessing of being reconciled to God and submitting to his will and growing closer to him in sanctification by the renewing of our minds. We would lose all of it. And that is why I believe that we must stand against it. Though the enemy has been marching on the borders and to be honest with you, has breached the wall, there is still daylight left to fight if you have the will to do so. Start with your families, your kids, your grandkids, your nieces and nephews and cousins and extended family. Extend the design of God, no matter if your voice quivers and your hand shakes and you start breathing funny. Do it anyway. Tell them in love that there are two genders, man and woman. Men are to be masculine and women are to be feminine and that sex is a gift from God reserved for a married man and woman. Tell them that this is God's good design for your happiness and your pleasure and for the health and stability of your children's lives. Tell them that any deviation from this is a rebellion against the holy God of the universe. Give them the gospel regularly. Give them hope Fight their sin alongside them fiercely and don't give the world an inch. They are not your friends. Burn the smartphone and the laptop and the Wi-Fi modem and giggle like a maniac while the plastic bubbles in the fire, if that's what you have to do. But do not hand your kids over to the enemy and give them unfettered access to the propaganda of the enemy. Take a stand with your family and your friends. As God opens the door to share the truth, remember, you are an ambassador. You are an ambassador for Christ if you claim his name. Don't allow falsehood to be propagated. Speak the truth of God's design for sexuality. And so church, I think now you understand why we can easily say that we stand in solidarity with Canadian pastors, recognizing that Bill C-4 is a denunciation of biblical repentance and would seek to cut off Canadians from the life-giving gospel by criminalizing the work commanded to us by Jesus. Remember today, and I hope you take this to heart when this manifests itself in many ways, an unbiblical law can never prevent you from sharing the truth. Daniel opened the windows and prayed anyway. And we gather with our brothers today who are preaching anyway. You know, Queen Elizabeth II may have given Bill C4 her royal assent, but she is outranked by King Jesus. And he will always have the final word. Pray with me.